Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Professor Colton, and I'm the instructor for this course. I am very excited about this class. Part of my background is I spent 15 years working as a professional in the nonprofit sector. Worked with a variety of organizations. Most of them were related to the intersection between the campus and the community. So I worked for a faith-based nonprofit where the goal was to connect college students with the surrounding community. For four years, I worked at Stanford University and connected Stanford students with the community of East Palo Alto. And part of it was, was getting them connected to nonprofit organizations of all different stripes within East Palo Alto, which is a very low-income community that's nestled right in the heart of Silicon Valley. And so there's a lot of different opportunities for service within that community. After that, I moved down to Los Angeles and lived in Compton, California, which is in South Central LA. I worked at Compton Community College and the other community colleges in the LA Basin area. And again, the goal was connecting college students with nonprofit organizations. And so my exposure to nonprofit organizations is, is very broad for good and bad, seeing a lot of positive things about nonprofit organizations, but also just seeing some things that could really be improved and developed within a lot of organizations. The scope isn't just limited to U.S. nonprofits. I've also done work internationally. Part of it was bringing college students overseas to work and partner with organizations around the world. One organization was in Ethiopia, where we partnered with an HIV AIDS orphanage. Children whose parents had died from HIV AIDS who are now orphans, and our students went and worked within the orphanage in Ethiopia. And there was other things that we did with medical and public health related activities. So the sense is that the world of nonprofits is very large, and I imagine you're taking this class because you have an interest in nonprofits in, in some form or, or fashion. Can some of you share why you're taking this class and what you hope to get out of it. Yes. My name is Nick. I am a junior and just having taken different types of management classes, learning different perspectives from different areas in management, mm. whether it's nonprofit or otherwise, mm -hmm. and the types of leadership skills that go along with it, because it's different in every sort of management position. Sure. That's great. Other people, why are you taking the course? What do you hope to get out of it? I'm Danielle. I'm a junior. And kind of off of what Nick was saying, I think a lot of nonprofits are underfunded or like they lack is the amount of resources that other companies have. So so it's kind of a different management. You have to be more creative. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to learn. Yeah, no, that's very good. And part of it, this class is for you in the sense of I have a lot of professional experience and, and research experience in the nonprofit sector. And you probably come into this class with different questions or curiosities or confusions about the sector, or even you're thinking about going into this as a profession. So at any time, feel free to sort of say, well, what about this? Or I've been thinking about this. And you're probably not the only one who has that question. So so definitely as, as things come up, feel free to raise those questions. Other people, why are you taking the class? What do you hope to get out of it? Yes. Um, my name is Cameron. I'm a sophomore. I guess people, like classes that I've taken, they've never truly like explained how to understand how a nonprofit works. Mm -hmm. um, they've under, like, explained the conceptual stuff behind a nonprofit, but not truly the functionality. Hmm. Well, then you're in the right class. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, in many ways, this class is technical in the sense of what are the technical things things you need to do to start a nonprofit and then to have it function and be sustainable and also not break any laws or requirements that are part of being a nonprofit. Other people in this section, yes. I'm Emily, I'm a senior, and I think it'd be really interesting. I've taken a lot of management classes, so I want to see the difference like everybody else between nonprofit and profit. Uh -huh. But as I'm looking for internships and jobs um, later on in the next couple months, 
kind of deciding between the two of them. So deciding if you want to go into the private sector or right. nonprofit sector? Yes. Okay, cool. So in more of my background, my undergraduate degree was in engineering, and it's pertinent to this class because as an engineer, engineers, and specifically I studied industrial engineering and operations research, which is basically the operations of an organization. If you're producing a product or providing a service, that's what I studied was how to do that efficiently, how to do it effectively. Then I, I didn't get a job in engineering. I went straight into the nonprofit sector, and one of my grievances with the sector and with a lot of the nonprofit organizations was how they were poorly managed. They weren't operating in a very efficient, high-functioning, high-capacity way. They had a lot of passion, a lot of vision, but the day-to-day nuts and bolts of running an organization is where the leaders often lacked. And so when I think of management, I draw a lot on my engineering background or my organizational skills of creating systems and processes of just sort of how do you make things run smoothly as an organization. Oftentimes, the people who are in the nonprofit sector don't have that type of background where they're thinking through how to create systems and processes that would help you be efficient in your fundraising or in your other program and service delivery activities. And then I got a PhD in sociology. The sociology side of it is the people side. And a lot of times I think about the people side is is the leadership side of leading people towards a goal, towards a vision. And you kind of need both. You need the the nuts and bolts, the day-to-day activities going on, but then you need to know where you're going and you need someone to take you there. And so I think my passion and my heart is for serving people and to serve communities. And, And an effective way to do that is through nonprofit organizations. But it's really capitalizing on good management skills and strong leaders. Oftentimes they get swayed into the private sector because it's more enticing. But I think for me, I'm passionate about it is because there's more than one bottom line within the nonprofit sector. In the private sector, there's one bottom line, profits. And you're always trying to maximize profits. But within the nonprofit sector, you have multiple bottom lines. And some of it is just simply developing people, developing communities, which you can't even, it's hard to quantify in many ways. And also there's a shift in the nonprofit sector. It used to always be about your sources of revenue is primarily through foundations, through individual donations. But there's a shift now within the sector. And it's becoming, to me, very entrepreneurial and exciting of shifting to what's called like low profit organizations or B corporations or organizations where they have some sort of social entrepreneurship, revenue generating aspect to the nonprofit. And we'll be covering that in this class of thinking through it's more than just foundations and fundraising, but it's actually being entrepreneurial in the ways that you're generating your revenue. And so in many ways, if you're an entrepreneur, to me, being in the nonprofit sector is much more challenging and exciting because you have to be much more creative. I have friends who, two brothers, who went to Honduras for a summer and they fell in love with Honduras. They went there and and they saw that there's a lot of unemployment and a lot of poverty and a lot of crime. And so they said, well, they wanted to start a nonprofit, but they wanted to start one that was self-sustaining. And the self-sustaining nonprofit was a toy company that they were going to create using the wood, the forest and the Honduras jungles to create these toys. And the name of the company is called Tegu. And it's, it's named after the capital of Honduras. And so I knew them 
when they made their first little toy. And these, these toys, they're wooden toys. The unique thing about them is that they have magnets in each of the wood blocks. And so then the magnets stick together, the wood blocks stick together. And now if you Google them, you'll see them all over the place. And it's all a self-sustaining nonprofit based out of Honduras of building toys that are being marketed around the world. And when I think about a person going to the developing world and thinking, hey, I want to start a nonprofit, I want to do something to help. My desire and ambition is to expand the scope of what's possible. So, you know, you want to go into an area, but then you think through holistically, how could you develop a nonprofit in a way that would be self-sustaining and empowering to the community that you're trying to serve? And then using your passion and directing it, fueling it, that vision. So for them, it was making toys. And that's how they engaged their field of nonprofits. But the, the field of nonprofits is very, very broad. And what I'm curious to know is each of us has a standpoint from which we view the nonprofit world. We've had some sort of encounter or experience with nonprofits. That standpoint that we have shapes and almost eclipses our understanding of what the field is. And so what I'm curious to know is from you all, just what are the different exposures or experience to nonprofits that you've had, whether as being a, a client of a nonprofit or being a volunteer at a nonprofit? What types of nonprofit organizations have you had experience with? Yes. I interned for the Ronald Reagan uh, Foundation uh-huh. in Sea Valley, California. So that was my exposure to that. But, but they have like no problem with fundraising. You know? uh-huh. And there's lots of money, you know. Yeah. All the big donors, so. So, and, and what did you do for them? I was just an intern with the education department. So okay. I helped out with the kids, and there was, it was a good experience. So you were on the, the side of figuring out ways of distributing right. money to nonprofits. Absolutely. Yeah. So that, and that's a whole other side of, of the nonprofit sector is the foundations back there. So What's your name again? Sydney, sorry. Sydney, okay. Sydney. I just want to start as an intern for PALS, People and Animal Learning Services. Uh-huh. Um, here in Burlington, and I was a development intern, so I learned a lot about fundraising. I wrote a couple of grants. I helped with their big, like, it's like their main event. I learned kind of like, it was my first real exposure to the managerial side of mm. the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So, and that was pets and animals, did you say? People and animal learning. Cool. Yes. I interned at Monterey County United Ministries, which is a local Bloomington nonprofit. Um, I was also the development like officer, so I helped plan their biggest food drive. So it was a big fundraiser, but just like for food around the county. And then I also like helped write grants and fundraise, and kind of just had a hand in all the ministries. That's kind of cool. So you got exposed to the whole breadth yeah. of what they're doing. It's good. Other people, yes. Hi, um, I'm Maddie. I was a global ambassador for the Thirst Project for 2014 and 2015. So I guess my whole viewpoint has been from branding, I guess, um, and getting the whole mission and values out to people who can take action and help out with the fundraising. And what is Thirst? The Thirst Project is based out of L.A. They are essentially the... So it's a little bit difficult to explain because right now they're the only nonprofit that's going about ending the world water crisis through fundraising solely. Um, and the only way they can do that is because they have a group of board directors who have enough money to sustain the whole nonprofit themselves. And so all of the money that's fundraised goes directly into their mission. So my job was to travel to different places in the United States um, and South America and tell them about what we're doing, um, you know, and how they can help and get like students involved at different colleges and universities. Hmm. Wow. I mean, part of it for me is a weakness of the field or the sector is that we become very tunnel vision and siloed. So we know how to run our organization within our particular 
nuclear field, but we're unaware of the ways that other organizations within the sector are functioning. And one of them, the organizations that I work for, part of the job of, of the employees was to do individual fund development. So you have, you know, working with big donors and foundations, but this was on the individual level, reaching out amongst your network, sort of like micro fundraising on an individual level. And actually the vast majority of charitable donations are made by individuals, not by foundations. We hear about the Gates Foundation and all these big name foundations, but if you aggregate all the individual donations that are made, they surpass all the, the corporate and foundation grants. Yes. Hi, I'm Maria. I work at a nonprofit faith-based summer camp, and so I kind of see it from like the standpoint of keeping that around because I was a camper there mm-hmm. as a kid, and now I'm a counselor. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I kind of hope to take my boss's job and be running the entire thing. But I see it a lot as like where we can be writing grants and where we can be doing different things that help kind of sustain us. Mm-hmm. And so it's super interesting to see it from like a really small kind of perspective because we are very small. Yeah. When, and you bring up an important point that's not fully covered in this class, but a very large and overlooked sector of the nonprofit field is religious or faith-based churches and organizations. In fact, churches or congregations are by far the largest, most ubiquitous group of nonprofit organizations. There's over 350,000 churches. And you think of, you go into any community anywhere in the U.S., and there's going to be a church. There's going to be multiple churches. And even though their primary purpose is, is not necessarily service providing, they actually play a huge role in bringing about volunteers and providing resources, funneling resources to the community. So again, if you're working with a nonprofit and you come from a, a more secular orientation, you might completely overlook the fact that all the churches within a particular community as being potential places of resources to get your goals and objectives accomplished. Yes. Kind of going off what you were just saying and what you were saying earlier, through high school and my beginning college, I volunteered at an organization in Honduras. It's hmm. faith-based okay. every summer. And I would do things like teach English and, you know, build, help, you know, progress their campus. It was like an orphanage slash boarding school, I guess. Hmm. But it was all faith-based. And it's just interesting how not only are they concerned about fundraising money necessarily, but also volunteers and support mm-hmm. from back home in the States. Like, that's um, super yeah. important. And that's why I'm taking this class. Oh, good. Yeah, and that's another interesting complication thing. If you have an interest in, say, a country in Africa, it's actually best to establish the nonprofit in the U.S. and then bring the resources over there versus trying to establish a nonprofit in Nigeria or some country where it's logistically very challenging. And then the donations, if you're trying to get a large amount of donations from U.S.-based foundations, they're not going to be able to give as easily to an organization that's incorporated in Nigeria. So in many ways, you have to have your foot in both places. You have to be in the U.S. and understand how the U.S. nonprofit laws work, but then how do you take that and bring it into an international context? So it's good to sort of know these things ahead of time versus sort of charging out there and saying, okay, we're going to incorporate in this country in Nigeria or whatever before you realize, oh, there's actually a lot more incentives and benefits to establish an incorporate in the U.S. As we enter into this course, my first challenge to you all is to recognize that your view of the nonprofit sector is highly, highly influenced by your standpoint. Whatever sort of entry point you have into the nonprofit sector, you we have a tendency to think that that is the entirety of the sector, but the sector is, is very broad. And the, the reason why it's important to understand the broadness of it is because there's a lot of value in learning what other parts of the sector are 
are doing to tackle different management and leadership issues because there's, there's similarities that you share with other organizations, even if they're providing an entirely different service or doing a totally different type of programming. They still have fundamental needs that are true for all nonprofit organizations. And we're going to watch a short video that attempts to show you the breadth and the scope of the nonprofit sector. And, and as you watch this, it's going to throw a lot of statistics and big numbers at you, and it'll probably be overwhelming. But what I want you to do is try and catch a few of them that stand out to you, and we'll use that as a springboard to talking about the nonprofit sector. So this will be just giving you a sense of what's out there and pay attention to certain things about the sector that either you didn't know about or that was surprising or maybe that was depressing or maybe something that just resonates with you of like, yes, that's exactly why I want to go into this field or learn more about this field. So again, that was like a fire hydrant exposure to the nonprofit sector. It's just sort of a taste of what's out there. But what are some things that you observed or, or noticed that struck you? Yes. I'm a fine arts major, and it really struck me that only 4% goes to the arts. It doesn't surprise me. People don't think that it's that big of a deal to incorporate art. Sure. Education or whatever it may be. Yeah. It should go to more important things. Uh-huh. Is a bias that necessarily shouldn't exist. Sure, and it's 4% in decreasing. Yeah. It's, it's actually getting worse and worse over time. I mean, the number of orchestras or operas that are community-led or run are, are closing, are shuttering all over the country. So you're right. I mean, when I saw that as well, the 4% struck me. What other things did you observe? Yes. I thought it was interesting, like, the kind of comparison made between how nonprofits, some are kind of really just like corporations and how much money they actually mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. Different research about different nonprofits and how they kind of allot their funds and... I'm interested to kind of hear more about like how like that's changing and evolving. Yeah, I mean, and that goes back to managing your resources well. If you if you end up being a part of a, a nonprofit that has high revenue, there's a big responsibility to manage that money well, and it's actually challenging a lot of times. Or you think if you're part of a foundation, how do you allocate and distribute that money in a way that increases and maximizes the impact? So, and that's an aspect of management that we'll touch on. Other things that stand out. Yeah. That only 2% of donations go to the environment because I think that's a major issue. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, if they don't experience daily, like the lack of water and mm-hmm. all the stuff that's going on, they just kind of ignore. Yeah, no, both of those, the arts and and the environment, the the minimal resources that are being allocated definitely stands out. Yes, Veronica. The numbers for, like, environment and arts, especially, like, I'm a dance major, so that kind of, like, struck me as well. But it makes me understand more why, like, nonprofits sometimes try to, like, put themselves in different categories, like, oh, we're arts and education, (laughs) Uh or, like, teaching, or, like, health. Sure. Yeah, arts and health. Yeah, no, and that's the important thing to recognize is how are you branding yourself? And I even know it in the sense of the research that I do, maybe foundations aren't interested in this type of thing, but if I couple it with something else, then I actually open myself up to a whole new revenue stream of potential funding. So that's very important. I think a thing that stands out to me is just hospitals or healthcare organizations, the the large number of those that are nonprofits, because we don't really think of hospitals as being 
nonprofit. So we don't even think of Indiana University, the education arena, as being nonprofits, but they are nonprofit organizations like Harvard University is a nonprofit organization. Even the NFL is a nonprofit organization. It's a professional association, and yet it seems to be doing quite well financially. It doesn't need to do much fundraising from my perspective. Again, there's aspects of the nonprofit sector that we tend to overlook or maybe just forget about as we're moving forward. The good thing is, is that part of this class will allow you to not only be exposed to the breadth of the sector, but also then to dig deeply into a particular part of the sector that you have a vested interest in. And so part of it will be a team project, which I'll go into more detail about, but it'll allow you to explore and dig more deeply into your particular area that you're passionate about and and work with others in that. So when I think of this course, it's nonprofit management and leadership. And so just did a brief survey of nonprofits and what's that. Next is management. So if we think of like, what is management? Management is not a very glamorous thing. If you're a manager or you think of the ways that managers are portrayed in TV or movies, managers are sort of these middle management people who don't have very glamorous positions. And oftentimes in the nonprofit sector, we are exposed to poorly managed nonprofit organizations. And I'm curious from your all's perspective of being exposed to nonprofit organizations and and how well they are managed. Actually, what I want you to do is to think about your experience in SPIA, because in many ways, SPIA functions like a nonprofit organization. And I want you to write down three ways that SPIA, from your experience as a student, as a client of this organization, three ways that you just sense it's managed well. Like it's accomplishing its purposes and it's serving the students in ways that, yeah, I really like this aspect of SPIA and how it's managed. Then I want you to write down three ways where it could be improved. You know, and and management is the operations, the functioning (laughs) of the organization, actually fulfilling its purposes and how well it's doing that. So write down just three ways that it's doing it well and then three ways that it could be improved. And even if you're not a SPIA major, sometimes it's very helpful that you're an outsider coming in. How are you experiencing it as someone who's from the outside trying to navigate it? Is it accessible? Is it helpful? And then I want you to pair up, but this time instead of pairing horizontally, pair with the person in back or in front of you. So there's two rows. So the front two rows pair up that way. Introduce yourself and share what you wrote. Okay, so that I can gather feedback for SPIA. What are some of the ways that you observe or experience SPIA as being well managed? What are some things? Yes, Sydney. I really like that. I feel like SPIA notices that all the students want to do well and they want to make a difference in the world. So they provide all these like financial opportunities. Like they pay for half of your study abroad trips. There's the greater good internship fund. Mm-hmm. I think that's really great to help students that are like really want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. That's good, yes. I like that SPIA has so many engagement opportunities, like from study abroad to career development to just like different extracurricular activities. Uh-huh. They just provide a lot of options and help people get involved. Yeah, they give you opportunities to apply what you're learning yeah, versus having. Like professional opportunities. Yeah, very much so. Other things that you've experienced in well managed, yes. Every single like SPIA, like faculty yeah. administration run meeting I've been to has been super like well organized and thorough. So I think that shows like the faculty has held like a high standard here. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. makes them really into their job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, looking at it from another arts perspective, I think SPIA does a great job actually like living their mission statement and their vision statement and actually going along with that when mm-hmm. they make executive decisions. Mm-hmm. That's something that I've like, noticed. 
So there's consistency and congruence with who they say they are. And then, yeah, because you guys are the best judge of is Spia living out its mission? Is it actually practicing what it proclaims? Yes. What's uh, your name again? Cameron. Cameron, okay. And I looked at it from a point that there's a high demand of students who want to be a part of the organization, mm -hmm. not just students, like professors also. So that shows that the organization ran well, people like actually want to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's enthusiasm. I mean, one of the things that I love is the central atrium. You know, you walk in there, like literally last Friday, it was a ghost town. And then all of a sudden Monday, apart from the snow, it came alive with chatter and, and conversation and seeing faculty and students all interacting. So what are ways that SPIA could improve the way it's managed? As an outside perspective, I've heard a lot of bias against SPIA around the campus mm -hmm. as opposed to schools like Kelly. Mm -hmm. And I'm minoring with a SPIA, SPIA minor. Yeah. I have a choice between the two. And there's definitely a bias that leans towards Kelly as opposed to SPIA, which mm -hmm. I really interesting. And I think that SPIA doesn't necessarily have a bad reputation. Yeah. But they're definitely not prominent as Kelly is. Uh-huh. And maybe they could work to, like, push out their mission statement. Hmm. I don't even know what it is. Yeah. And if they, like, had that around campus, I don't know. Yeah. So in a sense, SPIA is, in a sense, it's marketing. It's branding of its organization could be improved to show more clearly and compellingly what there is to offer. So, yeah. Yeah, I was kind of going over to you said, like, marketing as far as, like, to, like freshmen especially. Because, like, I feel like a lot of us, like, we didn't know about SPIA. I'm, I'm a sophomore, but, like, I didn't mm -hmm. know about SPIA my freshman year. And, like, I, I made my way here, and I'm glad I did. Yeah. I wish I hadn't been there earlier. I had known about it. Mm -hmm. I had thought about it, I guess. Yeah, no, that ties very, yeah, people don't know about it. Yeah. So I'm a CN ambassador, and so like my job involves all the information sessions. So that's for like prospective students who are, you know, like looking at colleges, and then that also goes to students who are on campus who want to transfer into SPIA. And like, there's such a remarkable difference between those two like, sections of people. Hmm. Usually, the people who are prospective students, they're interested in more nonprofit management, off of policy, environmental, and then you have like the people who are transfer students. It's like for the most part, management, management, management. Like uh, the major. Yeah. And I think that like that's because a lot of people view SPIA as, oh, if I didn't get into Cali, like I'll be a management major in SPIA. Mm -hmm. And I think that really needs to change. And mm. I almost like feel like it needs to be the management like degree in SPIA should change because I just feel like a lot of people see it as a cop out and like it should be something more that people aspire to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well SPIA can be a part of that, but that's almost like a, a larger story of how do you create a compelling narrative. I know I, mean, I know for myself with an engineering degree, most of my friends went into management consulting and those types of businesses. And I remember saying to myself, I was like, you know, whatever job I do, I'm going to be working 70 plus hours a week when I'm first out. And I don't want to just be making money for another organization, but I want to be doing something that's significant and meaningful. And so that's what thrusted me into the nonprofit sector. I do find it interesting. One problem with the name of this course or even the sector, the nonprofit sector is very poor marketing to name yourself based on what you're not. That's sort of a problem because <laughs> then all the emphasis is on, oh, so you don't make profit. <laughs> but I liked in the video of different ways of branding and, and identifying the sector.
sector. And from my perspective, I call it the social sector, where you're caring about the social environment of your community. And I've noticed that other places have adopted that way of presenting the sector, like Stanford University has the social sector leadership program. And so it's, again, if you're an aspiring leader and you're thinking, you know, like Emily is, do I go into the private sector or the nonprofit sector? Well, if I said, Emily, how would you feel about becoming a social sector leader, a leader within the social sector? You know, in a way that could be inspiring of like, yeah, that's actually what I want to do and how that lives out. I'm not sure, but that's what I'm interested in. So, yeah, a lot of it is thinking through how are we talking about the sector or marketing the sector? What other things just in the mundane nuts and bolts, pain in the butt types of thing about SPIA that it's just poorly managed? Maybe it isn't, but maybe you have bumped up against things where you're like, ah, oh, this is frustrating. Yes. They do have like, a good website, but I think that they can make improvements because I know that I've had difficulties like finding things on like a website sometimes. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Maybe, like, that's like a stupid little thing that like if someone can't find what they want on like a website, like it might keep them from doing like looking for it at all. Yeah, yeah. No, and I mean literally with the syllabus this morning I was trying to upload it onto Canvas. And my thing, you know, that little circle thing that just keeps the circle of death, it just kept doing it. So then I, you know, closed down Firefox and then rebooted it. And so it's like, it's stupid, but it's very frustrating too. It's not necessarily SPIA's problem, but it's IT and management. Yes. Closing the main entrance of the only building of SPIA the day before second semester begins. That's true, but it'll only be closed for five years <laughs> yeah. while construction is taking place. So, <laughs> well, and I felt bad. A student came up to me yesterday and she's like, how do I get out of here and it, we were in the first floor and I was like okay I know you can't go that way I know that's blocked and I, know, and I was like I don't know <laughs> I don't know how to get out of here yeah. so I know there's a way but maybe they need big signs or something yeah. any other mismanagement or poor management stuff yes Lauren uh, not all the classes like of SPIA are in SPIA which is like, mm. it's got a spatial problem and it's gonna be fixed when like they add the grad student building on. yeah like it's really annoying that you like go across campus and that's true Especially if you have back-to-back classes and you're having to hustle across campus. Yes? I was going to say, like, they're all part of their mission is, like, conservation. But, like, if you go to a lot of the bathrooms here, like, the toilets are still running or, like, the faucets are dripping because they're, like, mm-hmm. outdated in some of the bathrooms still. Yeah, good observation. I mean, a big part of management within nonprofits is this idea of incongruence. And it's basically where you're misaligned with what your mission and goals are and what you actually are doing or ways in which you counteract what you're trying to accomplish as an organization. So there's nonprofit, there's management, and then we transition into leadership. And to me, this is the most important because management is the internal functioning of the organization. It's making sure everything runs smoothly and that there's as few glitches as possible, that you're efficient, that it's a smooth running operation. But if you don't know where you're going as an organization, if you lack the leadership, then you're really good at just kind of spinning your wheels. You know, it doesn't matter what you're doing. And so the leadership part is, to me, the critical element of nonprofit management and leadership. And leadership, I see it in in two forms. There's leading the organization. What is the organizational goals and objectives? And so how do you lead a large organization? But then the other aspect is people, leading people. And those are two different things. And so when you think of being a leader, and I would estimate that most of you in this room are leaders in some capacity or another. And leaders aren't necessarily born, but they're developed. You might have leadership qualities, but no one sort of comes out being the perfect
perfect leader. It's more sort of recognizing, okay, how can I lead in this context? And how can I be an effective leader in this context or leading well with others? And what's interesting for me is that there is no one leadership profile. Probably one of the best leaders that I worked for, he was non-charismatic. I don't know what the opposite of charismatic is, but he was just, he was a simple person, but a highly effective leader. There was nothing fancy or showy about him, but what he did, in fact, when I went, this is when I moved down to LA and he was the director of all of LA working on the community colleges across the city. And when he invited me to come down and work there, he said, how would you feel about being a co-director? And this guy was 55 years old and I was 25. And he said, how would you like to be a co-director of this whole thing? Like we have equal ownership of it. And I was very humbled by that. One reason why he was able to do that is he was a very secure leader. Like he didn't feel the need to say, I'm the leader and everyone else is going to follow me. But he saw me as a young person who was very ambitious. And he said, hey, you know, if you want to be developed as a leader, let me just actually put you in that position. And you're going to be running meetings. You're going to be doing trainings. You're going to be doing the fund development. You're going to take on all the responsibilities that the director would, but you get someone to do it with. So you're not just thrown out to the wolves and having to lead this organization all by yourself. But it's like, here's a leadership development opportunity for you. And again, it was his way of leading, of empowering people. And he didn't just do it with me, but that was his vision and his commitment as a leader. It wasn't about him, but it was about developing and growing other leaders and moving them collectively towards this common vision. And so when we talk about leadership, it's taking a lot of the things that we learn in this class and thinking about them at a higher level. How do you multiply your efforts? How do you empower people or understand where people can best fit within an organization? Like when I think of organizations, you have the CEO, which is the chief executive officer, but then you also have the COO, the chief operating officer. And so the CEO is the typical leader profile and the COO is the manager. And so if you're the executive of an organization, it's really important that you have a good operations officer because you might not be good at the management side of things, of the daily functioning of the organization. But you need to be able to hire and bring on board the right person. My friend, he is the CEO and founder of this microfinance company called Kiva. Has anyone heard of Kiva, where you make loans to people? So Matt Flannery, he started it about 10 years ago, and it's, it's grown to a multi-million dollar microfinancing organization, nonprofit. And about a year and a half ago, the board of directors came to him and asked him to resign as the CEO. It wasn't because of any moral failing. It wasn't because of any financial problems that he was doing. It was because he was an excellent entrepreneur, but not a very good manager. And so the organization had matured to a phase where it needed a high functioning manager to manage all the operations. And that wasn't within his skill set. And so when we think about leading an organization, part of it is knowing where your weaknesses are and filling in those gaps. And so a lot of this, you know, we're focusing on nonprofit organizations and in that context, being a leader and knowing how to lead effectively in that type of environment.